Hello and welcome to episode 1 of Pay-Per-View where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context. I'm going to start episode 1 with a classic reminder of how we are led to believe that we live in a truly free democratic country. But every now and then something happens to remind people that actually we don't live in a truly free democratic country. And I think in recent times it would be hard to top the aftermath of the Brexit referendum or a reminder of that, the attempts to scupper the will of the majority of the people who voted to leave the European Union continues and I'm going to start with a story here from The Independent. Pro-EU campaign groups join forces to fight against hard Brexit. Labour MP Chukit Amuna to chair umbrella group of nine organisations mounting collective push for closer links to Europe. Nine campaign groups which want the closest possible links with the EU are to join forces in order to mount a more effective attack on Theresa May's plans for a hard Brexit. The organisations, which have half a million supporters between them, have set up an umbrella group to urge a soft Brexit and call for the public's voice to be heard, possibly through a referendum on the exit deal. The move has been welcomed by the Independent. The grassroots coordinating group will play a crucial role in lobbying MPs before Parliament votes on a withdrawal agreement this autumn. If pro-Europeans win a referendum on the deal, the new group would be the starting point for a campaign to remain in the EU. The nine campaigns will coordinate their work to avoid duplication following criticism that they have been competing with each other rather than fighting the government. It's a bit like the People's Front of Judea, one insider admitted, in a reference to Monty Python's film Life of Brian, in which fractious independence groups bicker rather than fight the Romans. The groups involved are the All-Party Parliamentary Group on EU Relations, Open Britain, Best for Britain, the European Movement, UK, In Facts, Scientists for EU, Healthier in the EU, Britain for Europe and the New European Newspaper. Between them they have 1.1 million Facebook page likes and 307,000 Twitter followers. They've met informally in recent months and lobbied MPs before the Commons defied the government in December by giving Parliament a meaningful vote on the exit deal. They will now try to persuade the Labour opposition to take a tougher stance against Ms May's proposals and will urge the 25 pro-EU Conservative MPs to block a hard Brexit. Chukit Amuna, the Labour MP who has a weekly column with the Independent, will chair the coordinating group. He said this is a network of hundreds of thousands of people across the country who are determined the British people have a say not only on whether we remain in the EU but also on the form of Brexit pursued. We have now brought together all the different armies to join the battle in a more efficient and effective way. Mr Umunna denied that the pro-EU group's efforts had been hampered by rivalries between them. The Streatham MP added, It is vital in our democracy that in these Brexit negotiations the people get a say on the outcome, rather than their representatives in Parliament being reduced to some rubber stamp for whatever ministers decide. The 2016 referendum did not determine the form of Brexit, so a grassroots network of civic society organisations and parliamentarians are now working in a much more coordinated way to ensure that people's voices are heard in this process. The new group will work across parties and organisations contrast that with the pro-Brexit European Research Group, chaired by Jacob Rees-Mogg, which has the support of, of about 60 Tory MPs. Pro-Europeans hope the tide is starting to turn against Brexit. They have been buoyed by an ICM poll showing a 16-point lead for the public to have the final say on whether to leave the EU when the Brexit deal is known. They have seized on the leak of a draft government analysis showing the economy would take a hit under the main Brexit options. This prompted Philip Lee, a justice minister, to question whether Brexit could legitimately go ahead. 
Ministers insist the Whitehall study is incomplete and does not address their favourite option of a bespoke trade deal with the EU. What we've seen since the referendum result when 17.4 million people voted to leave the European Union is delays and we've had on one hand Theresa May dragging out the negotiation process. We've had, on the other hand, people like Chukamuna and others claiming that Britain might not get the right deal. We might need a second referendum on the type of Brexit we have. And you could frame that one way by saying, well, this is different to the first referendum because this time we are going to go ahead with Brexit, but it's just the type of Brexit. But what they won't tell you is that only one of those choices will be a Brexit worth having. Only one of those choices will be a true Brexit. The other one will be leaving the European Union in all but name. And they say that it wasn't clear what type of Brexit the British majority wanted. Well, it was clear. Brexit means Brexit. Leave means leave. There's no confusion there. But if you could persuade people there is, and on top of that you've got manipulation, not least financially, with the purpose of using that to persuade people that actually maybe we didn't really know what we were getting ourselves was in for with Brexit and we should have a second referendum to make it clear exactly what the British people voted for because they don't want Britain, especially Britain. Britain is a centrally important country to the European Union because it's a centrally important country to the global elite and their agenda and the idea is that the European Union goes on absorbing more countries until you have centralization of power dictating from the center the orders of the world government as is planned as i talk about in the in a book i'm writing at the moment called the global agenda playbook how a tiny few run the world and to what end where i lay out very simply the agenda the global elite have and the structure of society through which they do it and the basic structure they want although there's a lot more detail is a world government an unelected world government take the structure of the European Union and apply it globally, although it would be far more dictatorial even than that. A tiny elite at the centre, unelected, dictating to everybody else through the unions, like the European Union, like the African Union, which is, already exists. They want a North American Union to be evolved out of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. They want unions for different parts of the world through which the world government would dictate to the people and that's what the European Union is really there for and they want to absorb more and more not let any countries leave especially not a country like Britain being as important as it is to the global elite and their agenda what the European Union is about is total centralization of power in Europe through which the world government can dictate to Europe there's another story uh, here, in again in The Independent. Brexit. The time is now for Britons to change mind on leaving EU, says Tory MP and former Attorney General Dominic Grieve. Former Cabinet Minister warns the next six months are decision time over UK's withdrawal from EU. Dominic Grieve has warned the public it is running out of time to change its mind on Brexit, saying the next few months are decision time. The former Attorney General told the Independent it would soon be too late to reverse the decision to leave the EU and urged people to make their minds up in the next six months. Well, people already made their minds up. That's why they voted to leave. The six months we have between now and the autumn is so important, he said. It is going to be decision time. Well, decision time has already happened. It happened on June 23rd, 2016. 
That was decision time. The article goes on. He said it is going to be decision time. And decision time in the sense of what happens in the next six months being a final decision. If people do not want to change their mind, and they could if they wanted to, the time is now. It cannot be after 29th of March 2019, and frankly it cannot be after the end of the autumn this year. See, this is what they're doing. They're saying people can change their mind if they want to. I wonder if they'd have said that if the majority of the people voted to remain. The question answers itself. While he did not endorse calls for a second EU referendum, Mr Greaves said it was important to give people the chance to change their minds on Brexit. I'm not calling for a second referendum, he said, but we should not exclude the possibility that people's opinion may change. And to start from an opinion on an issue that was expressed 18 months ago, where people are bound to have had their opinion influenced since. We must be very careful to listen about what it is they want. They've made it clear what it is they want. 17.4 million of them voted to leave. He continued, it is the most extraordinary conundrum. No, it's not. It's very simple. People voted to leave. End of story. We have an instruction from the electorate by a small but significant majority to do something that many of us in Parliament think is going to be very hard to achieve without serious damage to the well-being of every citizen in the country. It is an ethical conundrum and it is a practical conundrum. This is what they're doing. Project Fear is back again. They keep telling people that Brexit is going to be catastrophic and even some of the predictions that have happened since we were told Brexit was a bad idea have actually turned out not to be true at all. They've turned out to be just fear-mongering again, like we had during the period before the referendum. Mr Grieve, who served as Attorney General under David Cameron, has been a vocal critic of the government's Brexit stance. It was his parliamentary amendment that forced the government to give MPs a binding vote on the final Brexit deal, leading to him being called a traitor and mutineer by right-wing newspapers. His latest warning comes ahead of a pivotal week for Theresa May as she attempts to find common ground between her warning cabinet ministers over Britain's future relationship with the EU. Ministers are gearing up for a major battle as senior conservative figures prepare to meet to thrash out the government's position on the single market and customs union. Remainers Philip Hammond, the Chancellor Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary and Greg Clark, the Business Secretary, have suggested Britain should maintain a customs union with the EU. This is something else they're doing, as I alluded to just now. Again, it's this idea that we don't know exactly what kind of Brexit we want. Well, like I said, it was very clear. Leave meant, leave means leave. Out means out. We, the idea is that we're out completely. The choice was leave or remain. There's no confusion there. They were joined by backbench Tory rebels Anna Soubry and Ken Clark, who said they would try to build cross-party support for maintaining the existing relationship. However, opponents say a customs arrangement with the EU would stop Britain making new trade deals after Brexit. Britain is hugely important globally, as I said just now. The idea that Britain can't trade without the EU is ludicrous. Brexiteers Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, Liam Fox, the International Trade Secretary, and Michael Gove, the Environment Secretary, are set to use two crunch meetings of the Cabinet's Brexit subcommittee next week to insist that Britain leaves the customs union. It places them on a collision course with the Prime Minister who is reported to be considering plans for the UK to remain in some form of customs arrangement with the EU. What this is all about is they're trying to salvage as much as they can of Britain's being in the EU. Whether it's the customs union, whether it's the single market, what it's all about keeping Britain in the European Union as much as they can possibly keep them in there. 
Downing Street has said the Prime Minister is keeping an open mind on the issue. Mr Johnson, Mr Fox and Mr Gove were backed by leading Brexiteer Jacob Rees-Mogg, who chairs the influential European research group pro-Brexit Tory MPs. He told BBC's Today programme, we need to be free to do deals with the rest of the world. We must be out of the protectionist common external tariff, which mainly protects inefficient EU industries at the cost of British consumers. To put it in one sentence, what all this is ultimately about is delaying Brexit and trying to stop Britain leaving the European Union altogether, as opposed to retaining some aspects of membership of the European Union, which is what they're trying to do now. We're going to change subject now. This is a story. Thousands march in London to fix the NHS and demand government deal with health service crisis. Campaigners demand that the government provide more beds, staff and funds to ease pressure on a crisis-hit NHS. Thousands of campaigners are marching on Downing Street to demand an end to the NHS crisis. Protesters joining the Fix It Now rally want the government to provide more beds, staff and funds to ease pressure on a crisis-hit NHS. This is in the Daily Mirror. The rally backed by the Mirror started at midday today, this was written yesterday, in Gower Street and campaigners made their way to Downing Street. Among the demonstrators was Jamie, a disability rights advocate who was attending the march in his wheelchair. He was injured in a serious car crash 21 years ago. I owe my life to the NHS, he said. There is a tragedy unfolding and the fact is that so many desperate people are traumatised, stigmatised and stressed by work capability testing. Save Lewisham Hospital campaigner Tamsin Bacchus, who carried a life-size vulture prop hovering over a bloody painted NHS placard, said she feared the UK could morph the NHS into a US-style user-based health service. I have faith and so do all these folk here that it's so important to have the principle of service that is great the point of use so that when you are ill when your child is running a high fever when you need the hospital or a doctor you can get them without worrying about having to pay for it. Dozens of speakers with first-hand knowledge of NHS cuts were organised to speak at the event. Ralph Little is listed to address the crowds at the rally organised by People's Assembly and Health Campaigns together. Last year, the actor has recalled how his mum's life was saved by health service staff for free while his mother-in-law paid thousands of dollars for an operation in Florida. My mother-in-law spent two nights in hospital, had a minor operation and was discharged two days later, he said. She has excellent insurance and was only presented with a bill for $2,500. My mother was rushed to hospital in an ambulance, received expert emergency calls, stayed in hospital for two weeks to recover, was treated daily by consultants, physical therapists, occupational therapists and nursing staff, was escorted home in a taxi and checked on three times a day for a further five weeks. Shadow Health Secretary John Ashworth said this summer marks 70 years since the Labour government set up the NHS. It is one of our country's greatest achievements and now we face a fight to defend it. In London today, I will join thousands of people marching the call for protection for our NHS against the dangers of this Tory government. The truth is that eight years of Tory underfunding, cuts and privatisation has pushed the NHS to the brink. He continued, this winter has been the worst on record, with overcrowded hospitals, ops cancelled and treatments delayed. It is heartbreaking to see pictures of elderly patients languishing for hours on trolleys and corridors. In my own city of Leicester, a cancer patient had a vital treatment cancelled. What a disgrace. It is all a consequence of decisions taken by Theresa May and her government. Our brilliant NHS staff have been let down by ministers who refuse to give the NHS the money it needs. Royal College of Nursing President Cecilia Accuracy Anim said she would tell the crowd nursing staff are bearing the brunt of the enormous pressures facing the NHS. Staff at every level are experiencing burnout and many of our colleagues are turning their back on jobs they love, she said. It's no surprise that nursing staff feel overstretched and undervalued. There are now more than 40,000 nurse vacancies in England alone. 
2018 is 70 years since the formation of the NHS and nurses have always been at the heart of it. Urgent action is needed to address the current crisis. If none is taken, it is our patients who will suffer. We will continue to speak out to defend our NHS. Well, I'm all for the NHS being defended in, so that it's free at the point of use rather than being privatised. And as I said in the pilot episode of pay-per-view, the idea in the end, the agenda, is to privatise everything so that you can dictate from a central point who has access and who doesn't. And if you don't do what the state demands, if you don't follow the orders from authority, you don't get access to money, food, water, shelter, and healthcare, and anything else. And of course, that is a great means for total control, which is why that's the agenda. So I'm more for the NHS remaining publicly funded and owned rather than privately owned. But there's another aspect here, which is the mainstream media doesn't look at or know about. And that is the fact that until you address the nature and the effect of toxins, food and drink and water in the atmosphere, and even in cleaning products and cosmetics, the effect of pollution and the effect of radiation all around us from technology, not only smart technology like smart meters and, and also Wi-Fi, then the NHS is always going to be overwhelmed because the causes of illness and dis-ease, disharmony within the body are being ignored. And if you don't focus on the cause of a problem, all you can do is find a solution to it. But the problem can still exist or it can come back and you're never going to get rid of it until you get rid of the cause of the problem and that is where the NHS is and will always be until this is addressed. And also there's the fact that the NHS is being systematically run down to get people to be more open to the idea of privatising it because of the state that it's in, which is why it's so encouraging to see so many people against the idea of privatising it with this march in London recently. There's another aspect of this as well. When you look at, in terms of healing the body, you look at pharmaceutical treatment, pharmaceutical drugs, and they talk about side effects. It's a very clever sleight of hand there, because if you call it side effects, people will see it as just, oh, that, that's what the drug might do, but the way what it's advertised is doing is what it's there to do. When the opposite is the case, the side effects are effects every bit as much as the effects that the drug is advertised for. If you're a global elite, wants to control the world you don't want a healthy sharp thinking sharp-minded population you want the opposite and also there is an agenda for a massive recall of the human population as i said in the pilot episode of pay-per-view there's too many people even with the control and the manipulation of people that they've had up to this point there's still too many people for them to do it physically so they have to do it through manipulation and perception and one of the best ways of doing that is to target the mind so it's not as sharp thinking as it could be. And also in terms of the color of the population target the body, which is what pharmaceutical treatment is there to do. I mean, we've got treatments like, um, in terms of hospital treatment, chemotherapy, which doesn't just kill cancer cells, it kills cells of any kind. And you've got radiotherapy, which is radiation. And what is a cause of cancer? Radiation. Now people will say that, now people might say that, yeah, I can see that on one level the cancer industry is a big money maker and so the people making money from it, they don't want to cure it because it makes them too much money and that, that level does exist. On one level that is the case. But if you want to colour the population, the A means among many others of colouring the population. Cancer is obviously a very effective means of doing that. So there's always two reasons why something is done. There's the reason the public can see oh it's just about money or it's just about this or it's just about that 
like we had with the invasion of Iraq, people on one level said, oh, well, that was just about oil. And on one level, it was just about oil, but there was another reason, which was it was to be part of this process of invading more and more countries on a checklist in the Middle East, which was actually drawn up before September the 11th, to eventually kick off a conflict out of that part of the world, as I said in the pilot episode of pay-per-view. And so that was the real reason. There's always at least two reasons why anything is done in terms of the elite's global agenda. Also, just before I go on to the next story, alternative treatment and alternative methods of healing, some of which are effective and work, are being constantly demonised and not given the prominence and the even in some cases the permission to be advertised in the way that pharmaceutical drugs are because of the effect they would have on the body would actually do the body some good. You've got constant demonization of alternative methods of healing. One of the reasons for that is the fact that mainstream everything, as you might call it, as I've seen it called before, doesn't understand the basis on which healing methods like acupuncture and homeopathy can actually work. So then they just say, well, how, how can you... Well, there is an explanation for how those and other healing methods work doesn't mean they work all the time it doesn't mean every single alternative method of healing will work but some of them do and that's the point that is missed by some and intentionally demonized by others and intentionally dismissed by others so all this comes together this is the context that the mainstream media misses or and doesn't know about so yes the nhs should be saved yes it should be publicly funded rather than privately owned but it's not the one-stop shop, the fountain of knowledge for healing that it's ported to be. That doesn't mean to say that everything in mainstream medicine and in hospital treatment should be avoided. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we should only look to alternative methods of healing. What I'm saying is we should have both. That's you know, The point is we should have both equally open to us rather than this demonization of alternative methods of healing in the mainstream and this limitation of promotion of alternative methods of healing. That's the way it should be, but it's not because of the reasons I've said. We should have an equal choice, but we don't. Another reason, and this is a, a technique that's used a lot, if alternative methods of healing were given the credit they deserve, then, especially when you take something like homeopathy or acupuncture, people would start saying, well, how do they work then? Okay, it's been acknowledged officially that they work, but how do they work? And I've seen it compared to dominoes, knocking one domino down, the first domino is okay, or the second one is how does it work? And then that starts a chain reaction of dominoes, of knowledge, of information, which the elite don't want people to be aware of, because that then opens up a much wider panorama of potential knowledge that people could become aware of, because of becoming aware of how things like homeopathy, how healing methods like homeopathy and other methods that are based on that knowledge work. So there's another reason why they want to hold the, the focus at mainstream medical treatment, if you want to call it that. So I'm going to go to another story now, change subject again. This is in the Daily Mail. Russian fighter jet is shot down by jubilant Syrian rebels. Pilot ejects and shoots anti-Assad fighters before being killed in defiant last stand after its plane crashes. Rebel fighters in Syria shot down a Russian plane using a handheld anti-aircraft missile and killed its pilot when he opened fire on them while trying to resist capture. 
dramatic video shows the Sukhoi 25 plummeting out of the sky after it was hit in the northwestern province of Idlib while carrying out a strike on rebels fighting the regime of Bashar al-Assad, Russia's ally. Another video then shows jubilant rebels celebrating as the wreckage burns on the ground, sending a huge plume of black smoke into the air. The pilot managed to eject and parachute to the ground before being captured. He was shot and killed when he resisted capture by opening fire from his pistol on the Al-Qaeda-linked militants who tried to seize him alive. The group Tahrir al-Sham re released a statement on social media quoting a commander in charge of its air defences as saying one of its fighters had hit the jet during an air raid over the city of Saraked in the northwestern province of Idlib. Tawir al-Sham includes the group formerly known as the Nusra Front, which served as al-Qaeda's Syrian branch. Russia's defense ministry confirmed the pilot had been shot down, saying a Russian Su-25 aircraft crashed during a flight over the Idlib de-escalation zone. The pilot had enough time to announce he had ejected into the zone under the control of al-Nusra Front fighters. The pilot was killed in fighting against terrorists. It added that according to preliminary reports, the plane was shot down by a portable anti-aircraft missile system. The ministry also said 30 militants had been killed in airstrikes carried out in the Idlib area. A video circulating on social media shows a lifeless body of a man, his face stained with blood as bearded gunmen stand around him. One of the armed men shouts, he is Russian. The pilot was later named on social media as Major Roman Filipov. Rami Abdelrahman, head of the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, said the pilot was killed as he fought Islamist rebels who had shot down his plane and were taken in captive. The Russian Defence Ministry confirmed one of its pilots had been killed. Now this is interesting. Rami Abdelrahman, head of the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. The mainstream media constantly quotes this guy. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights is Rami Abdelrahman. They are one and the same. Syrian Observatory gives image of this great big kind of building with loads of people working for it and this kind of this big center for information about Syria's conduct in terms of human rights. But the Syrian Observatory of Human Rights is Rami Abdelrahman. It's one guy, a Assad dissident and Assad hater who lives in Coventry. This is the source the mainstream media constantly quotes the Syrian Observatory of Human Rights, but the mainstream media in general doesn't bother to look into who he is. The Syrian Observatory of Human Rights must know that it's just Syrian Observatory of Human Rights. So we'll just take a statement and just repeat it, which is what they do all the time. They just take the official version and repeat it. The article goes on. Russia is a key ally of President Bashar al-Assad and has been waging a military campaign on behalf of his forces since 2015. I said in the pilot episode of pay-per-view why Russia and Syria are enemies of the West and one reason is that because Russia and Syria have actually done a much better job of holding back Islamic State because they've actually been trying to whereas the West wants Islamic State to gain more land and to continue they don't want to stop Islamic State it serves their geopolitical agenda for Islamic State to continue in the way that they are also, Russia and Syria have been on the list for a long time in terms of a foreign policy of the West for conflict with those two countries. The article continues. Russia is a key ally of President Bashar Assad and has been waging a military campaign on behalf of his forces in, since 2015. Since then, Syrian government forces have captured wide parts of the country and in recent weeks have been marching in the rebel-held northwestern province of Idlib. The province is also a base for Al-Qaeda's branch in Syria and other Islamic groups. 
The opposition's Aleppo Media Center said the plane was a Russian-made SU-25, but did not say whether it was Russian. Syrian troops launched a fierce offensive on Idlib in late December with backing by Russian warplanes. There have been dozens of Russian airstrikes in the area over the past 24 hours. This plane was also carrying out raids there. Opposition factions have shot Syrian regime planes in the past, but downing Russian warplanes is much rarer. In August 2016, a Russian military helicopter was shot down over Syria and all five people on board were killed. Moscow began conducting airstrikes in Syria in September 2015. Two months later, Turkey shot down a Russian warplane. It comes as a Syria Peace Congress hosted this week by Russia in the Black Sea resort of Sokki has been snubbed by Syria's main opposition and the Kurds. It agreed on the creation of a commission to discuss the country's post-war constitution. UN Syria envoy Stefan de Mistura, who attended the meeting, said the United Nations would lead efforts to form the commission. A copy of the final statement did not mention the fate of Moscow's ally, President Bashar al-Assad. In a statement quoted by state news agency Sana, a source in Syria's foreign ministry said the talks in Sulki were the cornerstone of the political process and solid base upon which dialogue will be launched from now on. Around 1,400 delegates attended Tuesday's meeting as part of a broader push by regime back in Moscow to consolidate its influence in the Middle East. But the main opposition group, the Syrian Negotiations Committee, boycotted the meeting, as did representatives of Syria's Kurdish minority. Well, this whole thing about Syrian rebels of the Assad regime, what the West has done, provable fact, is fund, arm and train rebels to shoot at the Assad regime. And at that point, there's no media, no condemnation from Western leaders. Then, when the Assad regime starts shooting back at being shot at, then full glare of the media, politicians and political leaders to the microphones and the cameras and he's killing his own people we need to go in on a humanitarian effort and blow the country to pieces to save people from violence and they go in and you get another you get a repeat of libya which is what's happened there exactly the same method of operation there to tick off this list of countries in the middle east as i said earlier so that's where this whole thing about rebels came from you hear about the Arab Spring, which was a series of protests and demonstrations across the Middle East and around across North Africa, began in 2010. You know, to make it very simple, what the Arab Spring was, and I've seen it described in this way, people with brown faces being played off against people with brown faces so people with white faces can steal their land. It's all part of an agenda. And people like George Soros, who is a massive frontman for this elite, a massive asset of this elite, who's behind spontaneous apparent uprisings, not in a way to actually resist the control and the manipulation and suppression of the population in a positive way. Um, not that I think that uprisings like Arab Spring are, are actually the way to do it anyway, as I said in the pilot episode, but not even to do it for positive reasons. It's to create a situation where you can use that conflict to then lead to a new regime being put in place, which is controlled by the same people that control the previous one. This is um, an article, an online article, but to add a bit of detail to what I was saying about the West supporting Syrian rebels, it's on RT.com, and RT does a lot of great work in bringing information and news to public attention that the mainstream media never would. Yes, uh, it's obviously got a Russian bias being called Russia today, that's what RT stands for, but it does nonetheless provide a lot of great information across various subjects. The article is called US and Saudis boosted ISIS arsenal by sending EU-made advanced arms to Syrian rebels. Study. 
Advanced weapons in the arsenal of Islamic State terrorists were made in the EU and delivered by the US, a study says. The deliverers were intended to prop up moderate rebel groups but resulted in arming the jihadists. The investigation by the London-based Conflict Armament Research concluded that the weapons supplied to opposition groups, in quotes, significantly augmented the quantity and quality of weapons available to Islamic State forces in numbers far beyond those that would have been available to the group through battlefield capture alone. And uh, the, the article goes on, more than half of the IS weapons recovered in the study were produced by Russia and China in between 1916 and 1989, prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Former Warsaw Pact states such as Hungary, Romania and Bulgaria, which are now members of the EU, manufactured 30% of the weapons and 20% of the ammunition recovered by CAR. These countries produced the majority of the weapons documented in Iraq. In Syria, most of the weapons recovered from IS were manufactured by Russia, followed by China and the EU states. This is a quote. These findings support widespread assumptions that the group initially captured much of its military material from Iraqi and Syrian government forces. That's a quote from the report. Uh, another quote is, this trend is plausibly the result of transfers made during the Cold War and of surplus transfers immediately after its end. The article goes on, ISIS is known to have been armed largely with Soviet-era weapons. IS militants overran the Iraqi army in Fallujah and other cities following the declaration of the IS Caliphate in June 2014. As Iraqi soldiers fled, jihadists raided arms depots and bolstered their stockpiles from weapons provided to Iraq during the Iran-Iraq War from 1980 to 1988. More advanced weapons were purchased from the European Union by the United States and Saudi Arabia and then supplied to Syrian opposition forces. These groups were then either defeated by or collaborated with IS forces battling to overthrow the Syrian government. The US supply of these weapons to Syrian opposition groups is considered an unauthorized transfer and violation of its agreements with the EU. The entire process of manufacturing of the weapon in the EU to transfer to IS forces in Iraq, according to a quote, occurred within two months of the weapons dispatched from the factory, the report adds. The study was conducted over a three and a half year period and funded by the European Union. Titled Weapons of the Islamic State, the report claims to be un unquestionably the most comprehensive verified study of the group's weapons to date. The report concludes that the US and Saudi Arabia indirectly allowed IS to obtain substantial quantities of anti-armor ammunition including anti-tank guided weapons and rockets with tandem warheads. These systems continue to pose a significant threat to the coalition of troops arrayed against IS forces. The study, the study adds, adds further evidence to the fueling of the Syrian conflict by the US and its allies. The U.S. supplied weapons to Syrian opposition groups vetted as so-called moderate rebels under the banner of the Free Syrian Army. While the FSA was portrayed in Western media as a popular movement defending Syrian citizens, a July 2017 study by the pro-opposition Century Foundation called it a weapons farm for larger Islamist and jihadist factions including Syria's Al-Qaeda affiliate. Basically what the West is doing is creating the force which they're then using to justify their own conflict and conquest is on the premise of the force that they funded and helped bring into being is being attacked violently. I'm going to finish pay-per-view this week with four stories that have been much discussed and they all come under the heading of feminism and just before I go into the stories the Rockefeller family as I said in the pilot episode of pay-per-view are one of the elite family bloodlines in the elite bloodline network one of the main ones along with the Rothschilds. They were fundamentally behind feminism and one of the reasons is I talked earlier about the depopulation agenda and it's no coincidence that feminists are behind 
abortion. One of the reasons the Rockefellers wanted that is because that helps with population control, which feminism is involved in, and how that connects into the eugenics movement. And also, it's the, one of the other benefits of feminism is that to get women more into the workplace so they can tax women. I'm going to start with a story about the President's Club. The President's Club to close down after claims of harassment at Hostess Gala. Guests distanced themselves from charity and hospitals say they will return donations. A charity that counted billionaires, celebrities and politicians among its high society patrons has been forced to close down after deplorable revelations about a men-only fundraising dinner where hired hostesses were allegedly gripped and sexually harassed. This is a story in The Guardian. Guests rushed to distance themselves from the President's Club charity while beneficiaries including Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital vowed to hand back donations as they reacted to reports of behaviour by wealthy guests at an annual dinner hosted by the comedian David Walliams. Well, you see, this is where what's become known as virtue signalling, which is making sure that in the public eye people know you've done quote right thing or said quote right thing. Virtue signalling seems to be more important than actually doing the right thing. Because of where the money came from, they can't use it to help children. Well, how about telling that to the children or telling that to the parents of the children? Amid mounting anger at details of an event whose guest list featured luminaries at the British establishment, such as the retail tycoon Sir Philip Green and the Dragon's Den entrepreneur Peter Jones, the charity announced it would distribute its remaining funds and close down. The Education Minister Nadheem Zahawi was reprimanded for attending the lavish dinner without reporting any concerns while Theresa May's spokesperson said she was appalled by allegations of what had taken place. At the President's Club event at London's exclusive Dorchester Hotel last Thursday, guests dined on smoked salmon with caviar, 34-day-aged beef accompanied by Dom Perignon champagne before bidding in an auction to raise money for good causes. But according to an investigation by the Financial Times, members of the all-male guest list subjected some of the 130 women employed as hostesses for the evening to sustained sexual harassment. An undercover FT reporter, Madison Marriage, said she was groped repeatedly and other women were invited by diners to join them in hotel bedrooms. One of the women who were selected to serve guests provided they were tall, thin and pretty said an attendee exposed his penis to her. Two days before the dinner, staff were allegedly informed their phones would be locked, safely locked away and were told to wear black underwear to match short black skirts they were given for the evening. The women were allegedly plied with wine made to sign non-disclosure agreements that led back to the boring if they spent too long, long in the toilets. You see, this is the thing. It's not as if this was a surprise for them. They were told what to wear. They knew they would be serving drinks to wealthy, drunk men. And they were told two days before the event their phones would be safely locked away. The lots offered in the auction included a night at Soho's windmill strip club and a course of plastic surgery accompanied by the slogan, Spice Up Your Wife. Zahawi was summoned to see the Conservative Party's chief whip and given a dressing down after Downing Street came under pressure to condemn his decision to go to the event. A number 10 source said he would be reminded of his responsibilities. Earlier, Theresa May's spokesperson had backed the MP saying, my understanding is that Mr. Sahawi clearly did attend the event briefly and as himself said he felt uncomfortable at it at the point at which the hostesses were introduced by the host. But as more details of the event emerged, the whips who are responsible for party discipline appear to have decided Zahawi made an error of judgment in accepting the invitation. A number 10 source said, the Prime Minister is appalled by what has been reported. This shows there is a long way to go to ensure all women are treated properly as equals. So 
this is a common theme, no matter what Prime Minister is in power, or President come to that, they'll be appalled at stories like this, but then they'll send troops to go into Syria and Yemen and other places to go and bomb the crap out of the place to serve a geopolitical agenda. But that's, okay, that's fighting terrorism, or that is doing what's right, so we can, yeah, that, I'm not appalled by that, but someone being, someone sticking a hand up the woman's skirt, oh, well, no, I'm appalled by that, that's wrong, that's terrible. Virtue signalling is what that is. Westminster has been rocked by a series of sexual harassment allegations in recent months, and Downing Street is keen to avoid the perception that the government does not take the issue seriously. Just on that point, um, this is the same Theresa May, who, when it came to the inquiry into historic child abuse, they call it historic as it can give you the idea that it only happened in the period that the inquiry covered. It's been going on a long time before and it's still going on now. But when there was the inquiry into the historic child abuse, this is the same Theresa May that pointed two people who were closely connected to the establishment in one way or another and thus made a mockery of the inquiry. And we now are on the fourth person at the inquiry after three previous chairs of the inquiry had to step down. It's the same Theresa May, but she's not appalled by that, but she's appalled by this. May is attending the World Economic Forum in the Swiss ski resort of Davos, where she will give a speech on Thursday. Senior figures from the worlds of business and politics lined up to condemn details of the event. Caroline Fairburn, Director General of the business group the CBI, said, If even half of what's been written about this event is true, it is deplorable and confirms how far we still have to go to stamp out sexual harassment. The Labour MP Yvette Cooper, Chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee, said, Is this what these men demand in order to donate to charitable causes? Utterly appalling and shameful. Great Ormond Street Hospital, which received £530,000 from the President's Club between 2009 and 2016, said it was shocked and would return the donations. Evelina London... Children's Hospital followed suit, rejecting £400,000 pledged Thursday by the restaurant tycoon Richard Caring, whose name was to be inscribed in a high dependency unit. So well over £900,000 that could be spent on hospital and the children in the hospital is going to be given back because of where it came from. Carey said he was not aware of or involved in any of the reported behaviour having arrived late at the dinner and left early. The business lobby group, the Institute of Directors, branded the event disgusting and deplorable while Britain's biggest trade union, Unite, called for an urgent investigation by the Charity Commission. Yes, the sexual harassment is wrong. Sexual harassment in any case is wrong, but it's looking at situations on its merit, and this is what political correctness and the those that virtue signal don't do. The article goes on. Unite also called for the reinstatement of harassment provisions in the Equality Act, which it said had been axed by the Conservatives. The Tory MP Maria Miller, chair of the Women and Equality Select Committee Act, earlier called for the Act to be strengthened. In a statement on Wednesday afternoon, the President's Club trustees said the charity will not host any further fundraising events. Remaining funds will be distributed in an efficient manner to children's charities and it will then be closed. The dinner's guest list was dominated by property industry tycoons, bankers, celebrities and politicians, including Sahawi and the Labour peer Jonathan Mendelssohn. A Labour peer spokesperson said Lord Mendelssohn attended part of the dinner as president of a charity that received support from the event. Lord Mendelssohn did not see any of the appalling incidents described in the report, but he unreservedly condemned such behaviour. A spokesperson for Jeremy Corbyn said the reports were appalling, adding it's a gross example of sexual harassment under this organisation's umbrella. 
In response to an urgent question in the House of Commons, the Education Minister, Anne Milton, said the club's joint chair, David Mellor, who stood down as a non-executive director of the Department for Education and chairman of the Government's Apprenticeship Delivery Board. The Labour MP Jess Phillips, who posed the question, said what happened is that women were bought as bait from men who were rich men, not a mile from where we stand as if that is an acceptable behaviour. It is totally unacceptable. I mean, it, it is unacceptable. Sexual harassment is unacceptable. Businesses that supported the President's Club, including the global advertising group WPP and the real estate fund manager Frogmore, cut ties with it. Williams, who hosted the event, said, I was there in a strictly professional capacity and not as a guest. I left immediately after I had finished my presenting on stage at 11.30pm. I did not witness any of the kind of behaviour that allegedly occurred and am absolutely appalled by the reports. A guest list seen by The Guardian included figures ranging from the billionaire Sir Philip Green to the Dragon's Den entrepreneurs Peter Jones and Thea Pafitis and Tim Steiner, chief executive of the grocery delivery firm Ocado. It should be pointed out that, of course, it's not everybody who did attend was necessarily involved in the sexual harassment. Patrons of the event listed by the President's Club included the Formula One magnate Bernie Eccleston, while the property developer Nick Candy was a patron was a patron until the end of 2017. Yes, sexual harassment is terrible, but what is happening, as with um, transgenderism, as of which, I, which I talked about in the pilot episode of Pay-Per-View, is that genuine situations are being exploited to serve an agenda. In other words, people who genuinely feel they're in the wrong body and in the wrong gender, those people are being used to bring more and more into society this idea of fluid gender and transgenderism and in the same way it's genuine sexual harassment is being used to demonize banter and demonize having a laugh and demonize comments that are actually not in any way meant to be discriminatory or sexist or offensive as part of political correctness's demonization of freedom of speech and also what it's doing is driving men and women apart if you're a global elite, a tiny few, and you want to control the population, you have to divide and rule the population, play it off against itself. This happens with religion. It happens in extreme cases with football fans and sports fans. It happens in various ways, and also intended to, to happen in terms of the agenda behind it, with all this focus on sexual harassment. The next story, very topical this week, is darts. Darts women being axed from darts. This is in the Independent. PDC darts will no longer use walk-on girls after pressure from broadcasters. The PDC will no longer use walk-on girls after pressure from broadcasters and fans. Women have accompanied players onto the stage for some years, something which has been regularly criticised, and the PDC has decided to act starting at this weekend's Masters in Milton Keynes. We regularly review all aspects of our events and this move has been made following feedback from our host broadcasters, a spokesperson told the Press Association. An ITV spokesperson added the decision was taken in consultation with the ITV and we fully endorse this move. Last year, world number one Michael Van Gerwen predicted the move, saying in an interview with AD Sport, where aren't? The PDC wants more people to see it as a sport. It does not interest me, work on girls. It is just a sport. The move has triggered a petition to reinstate the girls on Friday night. It had over 3,000 signatures and was backed by former world champion Raymond Van Brunneveld. I will really miss the girls. For me, they are, they are a part of the darts hero. The PDC's move will likely increase pressure on other sports, such as boxing and F1, to review their use of ring and grid girls. This is 
feminism and political correctness. Bollocks again. What we've got is girls who are not complaining, they're being paid to do their job, and it's something they're making money for. They're, making, they're not being forced to do it without pay. They seem to like it. It's part of the entertainment. Sport is entertainment. It's sport as well, and that it's competitive. Yes, absolutely, but it's also entertainment. That's why it's on television. That's why it's so popular. And this is political correctness and feminism. This is another example of political correctness and feminism affecting more and more areas of society. And where this is all going is not being able to say or do anything outside of the official political correct line, which is, will be the official establishment line in the end. Darby XF1 model slams acting of good girls and says it's a fun career, which, which for them it seems to be. But the point is not to look at how things are. Political correctness doesn't look at things on its merits. It just sees black and white and sees what it, it perceives to be discrimination. And often it's not actually the subjects of what is complained about that are actually complaining about it. It's other people like the progressives and the feminists and the political correct idiots. Anyway, the article says, A former F1 model and Derby businesswoman has criticised the acting of grid girls. F1 bosses say the long-standing tradition does not resonate with our brand values and clearly is at odds with modern-day societal norms. Well, it's not at odds with modern-day societal norms. It's at odds with the progressive, politically correct, feminist bollocks. And it does not resonate with our brand values. More virtue signalling. But earlier this week, models angry at the decision accused feminists of costing them their jobs. Absolutely correct. That's exactly what's happened. Now, Derby business owner Rachel Stevenson, a former promotional model for F1 British touring cars in Wimbledon, has also criticised the acting of walk-on girls. The 41-year-old who runs an events services company in Derby called Rachel Stevenson Limited said, I first became a promotional model and hostess for additional income. I worked with professional agencies and corporate clients across exhibitions, conferences, product launches and a wide variety of events, including national and international sports. In 2010, I moved to Dubai with an event staffing agency and I later became head of operations for the Middle East's longest running and largest model and talent agency, Bareface. I coordinated event staffing for many prestigious events such as the Dubai World Cup and Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. I also had the opportunity to support Gerard Butler in the city when he made an appearance for Hugo Boss. I feel very strongly about the recent bad press surrounding female promotional models and hostesses as I believe that without that background I would not have had those opportunities. Miss Stevenson, who has now returned to the UK and runs Rachel Stevenson Limited from her Chelliston home, said women should be free to make their own choices. See, this is where the politically correct idiots and the feminists don't see that they're actually causing what they claim to be campaigning against. They're campaigning against sexism and lack of opportunities for women as compared with men. When they're stopping women being able to do things it seems they want to do. Because they don't see the shades of grey, they just see black and white, it's either wrong or right. And they don't look at situations on their merit. That's what political correctness doesn't do. Like once again, as I said, they're being paid to do it. It's their job. They were earning money from it. Has any grid girl or has any ring girl come out and said that, yeah, I suffered sexual harassment, I didn't like it, I'm glad that they've stopped doing it. Has any of them come out and said that? Not that I'm aware of. She said any professional agency provides the models with a brief and it is the model's decision if he or she wishes to accept the job. I mean, that that is it. That is it in a line. 
No model is held to ransom or expected to wear anything that they do not approve. The work is fun, flexible and can pay models working full-time around £35,000 a year. I mean, that's a living. It's what they've done is, in their idiocy and their fake self-purity, is they force these women to be out of a job, a living. Sean Bratches, Managing Director of Commercial Operations at Formula One, defended the sport's decision to wrap models. He said, while the practice of employing grid girls has been a staple of Formula One Grand Prix for decades, we feel this custom does not resonate with our brand values and clearly is at odds with modern day societal norms. We don't believe the practice is appropriate or relevant to Formula One and its fans old and new across the world. Well, a lot of fans enjoyed it, so that doesn't make any sense. The Women's Sports Trust also waded into the row in a statement it said this is not a matter of feminists versus models. It's exactly what it is, which seems to be the way many people want to portray this story. Well, they want to portray it that way because that's what it is. These changes are taking place because global businesses are making a considered choice about how women should be valued and portrayed in their sports in 2018. Why? Because of focus on feminism and political correctness. That's why. That's why those businesses are making those choices. Now, of all times, the quote goes on, they deserve significant credit for doing so. It's all a load of bollocks. Speaking of which, to finish, more feminism. Bill Neville, TV bore, scores own goal with sexist tweets. In 2014, more than 440 viewers complained to the BBC that Phil Neville was too boring. His voice on commentary, they said, turning them off the World Cup. Neville, controversially appointed as manager of the England women's football team this week, must have wished a monotonous tone remained the severest criticism of him. Despite spending more than half his life in the public eye, first as one of Manchester United's famed Class of 92, alongside older brother Gary and David Beckham, and later as Everton captain, Neville has largely managed to steer clear of controversy. But a series of sexist tweets, coupled with the conviction of many within the women's game that he is underqualified to manage a national team in the ascendancy, has left the former defender scrambling to rescue his reputation. What this is about is the fact that he's a man. End of story. And the feminists don't like that, so they've got to find something wrong with him so they can justify attacking him. The tweets posted several years ago and presumably an ill-advised attempt at humour will forever haunt the 41-year-old. Well, only if he chooses to let that happen. Particularly one sent on 1st July 2011. Relax, I'm back, chilled. Just battered the wife, feel better now, he wrote. Well, Phil Neville actually has claimed that he was referring to a game of table tennis. When someone batters someone else in sport, it means that they beat them by quite a margin. But you see, they didn't think to contact Phil Neville and ask him what he meant before launching this tirade of claiming to have been offended by it and claiming that it's sexist or that it's politically incorrect, etc. They just launch the tirade. They just say they're outraged and off they go again. Another tweet read, Morning men, couple of hours cricket before work sets me up nicely for the day. When asked why he failed to mention women, when asked why, the important, uh, that's the key thing, when asked why, Neville replied, when I said morning men, I thought the women would have been busy preparing breakfast, getting kids ready, making the beds. Sorry, morning women. Well, are the ones getting kids ready for school and making breakfast, etc. Out of the man and the woman, it's usually going to be the man watching the sport and the women getting the kids ready. Whether that's right or wrong is a different debate. That's where Phil Neville was coming from when he made that statement. That's the point. 
a popular and respected figure in footballing and sports media circles, many rushed to Neville's defence, insisting his comments did not reflect a man they knew as fiercely loyal and kind. But less than 24 hours after his appointment, which the FA announced on the men's team at Twitter feed rather than the women's, Neville issued a statement. Following comments made a number of years ago, I would like to clarify that they were not on our option, a true and genuine reflection of either my character or beliefs, and would like to apologise. Why do people feel they have to apologise in the face of bollocks? You get Twitter storms. A perfect reply to a Twitter storm when you've not actually been offensive. If you're genuinely trying to be offensive, then you, uh, to have your comments dealt with and your abuse dealt with and your offensive comments dealt with in the necessary way. But if you're just, if you're just making comments like Phil Neville has done, perfect way to deal with the Twitter storm is to have a picture of a middle finger, a picture of a hand with a middle finger up. That's the perfect Twitter storm response, because that's all this nonsense deserves. Either we stand up to this political correctness rubbish, or we don't. Either we want, either we want freedom, or we don't. Because, as I said in the pilot episode, without freedom of speech, there can be no other freedom. If people want, if we're going to give in and apologise in the face of this bollocks, then let's just put the handcuffs on now and the ball and chain, because that's where we're going if we don't. The article continues. For many, the tweets did not present as much cause for consternation as his appointment in the first place. Neville has little little to no experience of the women's game and previously displayed scant interest in it. See, now, those are good reasons why to oppose his appointment. Those reasons make sense. That's fair enough. And if the opposition was just on the basis of that, I'd be far more supportive of it. What we've got is this feminist and political correctness bollocks that is just nonsense. The article continues. England, a rank num this is the women's team, a rank number one in Europe and third in the world, while their age group teams are blessed with talented youngsters. People are rightfully pointing out that if you were asking the men's side to employ someone, they would never go for a woman, let alone a woman who has never been a head coach and has no experience in the men's game, said Kieran Thievum, a women's football writer. That's a fair point. I agree with that. The Football Association has been beset by controversy in both the men's and women's game in recent years. It's, I, I would say it is unlikely, to say the least, that the, the men's team would be appointed a woman coach with the little experience of the men's game, of course, and it wouldn't make sense to do so. Last September, Neville's predecessor, Mark Sampson, was sacked after the full detail of inappropriate relationships he had with female players and a previous job became known. Earlier in the summer, The Guardian revealed Sampson was accused of making racial remarks towards leading player Inia Luko, for which the FA later apologised. And that comment, by the way, made by Mark Sampson was um, he was alleged to have told Inia Luko to make sure her Nigerian relatives did not bring Ebola to a game at Wembley, according to extra extraordinary new evidence The Guardian can present as part of the Inia Luko hush money case. Now, see, that seems like a racist comment. I would class that as a genuine racist comment. And in that case, I can understand the FA apologising for it. I can understand Mark Sampson being sat. And that is a genuine reason, I would say, for taking that action. A massive difference between that and the Phil Neville situation. The article goes on. This was supposed to be an appointment which brought a lot of positivity after the cloud that Mark Sampson left under, said Thievum. I would say a woman would have been preferred and there were very capable female coaches out there and for one reason or another they either did not apply for it, dropped out of the running or were not interviewed at all. There were certainly more suitable candidates than Phil Neville, says Kieran Thievum. The article goes on. Neville was born in Bury, Greater Manchester into a family obsessed with sport. His father, Neville Neville, was a league cricketer in Lancashire and his mother played netball to a good level. Gary was already kicking a ball around by the time Phil arrived and their sister Tracy 
became a netball international. You see, that they, so they've got a sister who became a netball international player. What's the chances that they would be discriminatory against, against women in sport when their sister is international and netball? Again, the feminists and political correctness idiots would not have bothered to find that out. As a player, Neville learned his trade at Manchester United under the celebrated academy coach Eric Harrison and alongside Gary, Neville, Beckham and Ryan Giggs. He spent the majority of his career playing under Sir Alex Ferguson, widely accepted to be the greatest manager in the history of the English game. Neville's first appearance for United was against Wrexham in 1995 and he became a defensive stalwart in their best teams in the late 1990s and early noughties, winning six Premier League titles, three FA Cups and one Champions League. In 2005, he moved to Everton, where he spent eight years until his retirement in 2013. He represented England on 59 occasions, although his international career was blighted by a penalty he conceded against Romania that sent England out of Euro 2000. I got publicly abused afterwards and found it really difficult, he said in a documentary film, The Class 92. My wife came home from work and the gates were on fire with an England flag on top of it. Of all the character references for Neville this week, his wife, Julie's Instagram, posted out, in response to some of the things I've been reading about my husband, I would like to point out that Phil is the most honest, kind, generous, gentle and hard-working man I've ever met. It is no more than she has said before when reflecting on the challenges they faced as new parents. They already had a 17-month-old son, Harvey, when a pregnant Julie woke one day to discover her waters had broken at 28 weeks. Neville was playing abroad for Majesty United at the time, but Ferguson allowed him to fly home and he spent the next fortnight sleeping beside his wife on a camp bed in hospital. Isabella... A girl was born 10 weeks premature and her parents were told she had 24 hours to live. It changed our lives completely, Neville said in 2010. Even with his world turned upside down, Neville's much vaunted work ethic meant he would still turn up for training every day, lagging behind the rest of the squad due to exhaustion. It's not my style to take time off, he has said. I'm quite old-fashioned. I don't miss work. For the first 18 months of Villabella's life, they enjoyed the agony of watching her miss developmental milestones without knowing quite what was wrong until she was diagnosed with cerebral palsy due to suffering a stroke in the womb. The couple are now involved with several charities which support children with the condition. There seems little doubt that Neville will work tirelessly in pursuit of success with the women's team. Ferguson wrote in his autobiography, He is one of those players to whom you could say, Phil, I want you to run up that hill, then come back and cut down that tree. And he would say, Right boss, where's the chainsaw? After he finished playing, Neville gained his UEFA B coaching licence and worked as an assistant for David Moyes during a turbulent time at Manchester United. In 2015, the Neville's moved from Manchester to Valencia, Spain, after Harvey was offered a place at a football academy nearby. Neville worked there as an assistant coach, but has only taken charge of one football match as caretaker manager of Salford City, the non-league club he co-owns. Neville and the FA will hope the debate around his appointment is dissipated by March when he takes charge of his first games facing three of the world's top six teams in the She Believes Cup in the US. If he comes through those games with positive performances and good results, that's what people will be talking about, said Thievum. If he doesn't, he will be the coach who had no experience the women's game, had no head coaching experience at all, who made silly jokes on social media and can't get results for the national team. Well, either you give in to this box or you don't. It's a mad world, but there's a method in the madness, and once you understand the method and you understand the reasons for the method, and you have the context and connections to see the true bigger picture, then it all makes sense and you can see what's really going on. And that's the point of pay-per-view. So I hope you've enjoyed it again. I look forward to doing it next time. And goodbye.